Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tianwei. Sustainable development goals are a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that by the year 2030, all people enjoy peace and prosperity. With only seven years left to go for the year 2030, the world needs all hands on deck working together and working faster. For those from the World Trade Organization, one of the keys is to strike a balance between trade and environment. On this, I talked to Ambassador Jose Valencia, WTO Chair of the Committee on Trade and Environment. Mr. Ambassador, what a pleasure to see you. Good to see you too again. Yes, to reconnect after Geneva, the public forum. One of the things people are extremely interested in is what's likely to be the role of trade in terms of sustainable development, in terms of environment protection. Tell me more about where are we today as a whole. Yes, I'm, I'm really thrilled also to be part of the efforts of the World, World Trade Organization members to do uh, what I believe is one of the main important tasks uh, of the organization nowadays, which is to connect trade with environment. We have a mandate that, in fact, the Committee on Trade and Environment was created uh, years ago, but now under the current cost, context and urgencies of the uh, environmental agenda around the globe, I believe the committee has a uh, some sort of new responsibility to to be ready to respond to what the international community I think is is waiting to to have a perspective uh, uh, from trade in order to support the goals of the international agenda on environmental issues. You know, Ms. Ambassador, there are two major concerns. One is that trade policies will hinder the exchange of green goods and technologies. The other thing is there might be green protectionism, on the other hand, using green, quote unquote, as an excuse for trade protectionism. How do you see the two major concerns regarding the relationship between trade policy and the environment? In my opinion, the World Trade Organization was created in a very specific context, economic context, world context. And, and now that we have a new challenges as a global community, we need to be also ready to keep a step ahead of us and assume the new challenges at the new context that we have uh, in front of us. I mean, meaning, years ago, two decades ago, we still did not, did not have enough, uh, I wouldn't say uh, support by the consciousness about the importance and the dramatic impact of climate change. Now the, the situation is different. We appreciate what is going on in terms of climate effects uh, coming from the climate variation. And uh, I believe from every aspect of international relations, we have to give uh, an answer, give a support, do something about it. So in other words, from the uh, World Trade Organization perspective, those uh, uh, conversations have to, to, to start and, and, and uh, take into consideration and try to solve those uh, issues that you, you mentioned, that uh, somehow the trade tools that are just tools for exchanging goods and services, to put it in very you know general terms, those tools are not used against something that is very much uh, uh, sick about from the uh, international community. On, I believe that on the contrary, trade tools have to be used 
they have to be useful in order to foster cooperation, to protect the environment, and to advance environmental goals of the whole international agenda. At this point, I understand from business perspective, there are lack of regulations and clear laws regarding how green practices will be encouraged and recognized. And therefore, that is hindering investment by private sector, for example, to invest with uh, uh, green technologies and also to bring green elements into their businesses worldwide. So there are increasing call for clarity. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you are sitting in this important chair. What do you make of the call from the business community? Well, something that I can really uh, witness uh, from my seat as a, a chairperson of the committee is clearly that the, much of the times the business is ahead of are ahead of of uh, governments or uh, regulators because it's not just a matter of having more initiative, but because I see that technology and the implementation of technological uh, decisions uh, with regard to environment are more and more present and. and uh, are present not because uh, the, the, the businesses want to expand their operations. They do want to do so, but because there is a necessity to do it. I mean, I'm not going to go into details, but there are countries that are rapidly evolving from a, a clean energy, uh, from a, a, a fossil energy uh, matrix to a clean energy matrix. And they are doing that year after year, a very important pace. This is just to mention one case. Uh, of the of the whole process of, of business and, 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 and green energy and green technology, etc. What I think clearly uh, is that there has to be a more direct connection, involvement of governments with other stakeholders. So in other words, uh, in this specific issue of trade and environment, I believe that uh, a very important uh, way of doing things to explore is to try to reach to other stakeholders and establish a, a conversation that, in fact, I believe is going to be very, very productive. Uh, I have a couple of examples of that, but uh, I don't want to be, but just uh, concrete what, what you have asked me about. I was there at the public forum in Geneva, and I noticed that on the agenda, there are enormous amount of sessions related to how trade and environment are going to be linked and what kind of policies need to be churned out. So I also hear personally from the Director General, uh, Madam Ngozi herself, about the urgency of doing this and her personal determination as the DG. So given the atmosphere in Geneva, particularly in WTO, uh, what do you think is the momentum right now? I guess the, this is a good moment in the sense that we are aware and there is a high degree of awareness, if you want, with regard of the urgency of doing something about the environment nowadays. You know, there are some discussions on trade that easily take decades in, in, in solving those discussions, I mean. But with environment, the situation, I think, is different. We cannot, uh, you know, we don't have the advantage, uh, so to say, that many decades before having decisions with regard to climate the luxury, change. right? We don't have the luxury anymore. That luxury is not longer there. It's never there. It never was there and it's, it's never going to be. You see, the, the, the goals with regard to uh, CO2 emissions are there, are, are next door in terms of, of uh, human history. So that situation certainly supports 
the view that Mr. Ngozi uh, transmitted to you in, in, in a way that uh, we have to do something urgently, something that is substantive. Do, we do not need just, you know, uh, good uh, intentions or good words or whatever, but we need uh, concrete uh, decisions. How would you describe uh, China's uh, contributions and roles in the ongoing discussion, Mr. Ambassador? Well, China is a, a very active member. As a chairperson of the uh, of the committee, certainly I appreciate the contributions of, of China in the workings. As a ambassador of a country member, Ecuador, uh, I have to, to, to say that uh, with China, where, uh, for example, I talked uh, recently about the uh, initiative on of dialogue on plastic pollution. One of the co-coordinators uh, with Ecuador is, is China. The others are Australia, uh, Morocco, Fiji, and Barbados. So um, we have a very good uh, sense of, of going through the, the right goals and the right objectives. I believe uh, that uh, if every country is going to uh, put as much as, as it can from its side in order to provoke uh, uh, cooperation and cooperative results at the organization, uh, in the end, we all are going to be better off. Mr. Ambassador, the Belt and Road Initiative is certainly have a great impact on connectivity around the world. As you know, the BRI is not China's product, but rather China's initiative and been working with countries and economies who are on board. So tell me more about what do you make as an ambassador coming from a developing country on the impact of a BRI? And what does that mean for trade? As you know, these days it's very much an updated version, not just about infrastructure, physical infrastructure anymore. It's more about digital infrastructure, green infrastructure, sustainability, and people-to-people -people exchanges. My country, Ecuador, joined the initiative, and uh, we clearly have in mind to the Belt and Road uh, initiative and, and programs as a way of connecting to, to other countries. Uh, uh, my country, Ecuador, is... Uh, has the, the projection to the uh, Pacific as one of their its uh, main goals in terms of foreign policy. We want to reach countries that are in the other side of the ocean, the, the, the biggest ocean in the world. So now uh, appreciating this new, um, some sort of uh, update uh, of the of the initiative incorporating green and uh, digital uh, uh, consideration as well, uh, I think they, they are welcome. They are, both environment and digitalization are part of the modern world. We've seen the importance of environment. We've been talking minutes ago about how the WTO environment is somehow one of the main issues to be discussed. So why not? Having the same approach at the Bell and Road, I believe, will enrich the opportunities of cooperation that the initiative will uh, help in order to, to foster among states the, uh, uh, that are members of the initiative a more uh, concrete integration into uh, common benefit progress. Mr. Ambassador, I think uh, those are wonderful input uh, from your side. And thank you so much uh, for your generosity of time and also suggestions. Appreciate it, Mr. Ambassador. Coming up, the Belt and Road Initiative and the Uffizi Gallery both draw inspiration from past cosmopolitan glories like the Silk Road and the Renaissance. We speak to the Uffizi Gallery director to find out how we can coexist in the globalized world through 
cultural understanding. Welcome back. This is World Inside with me, Tianwei. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. The BRI aims to improve connectivity, promote free and fair trade, and also connect people through cultural, social, and scientific exchanges among all countries and nations. Culture crosses borders and inspires us across eras. Ike Schmidt, director of the Uffizi Gallery, has been curating museums around the world. He shared with me recently his insights about civilization exchanges and cultures across borders. Professor Schmidt, what a pleasure to see you. What a pleasure it is to be here. I mean, I just saw one of the most amazing museums, which I uh, heard that it existed, but I was never there before. And I'm 55 years old now, and I had not been to this museum. <laughs> and now your dream, one of your dreams come true. I mean, it's always amazing when you see great art, but here we have a wonder of uh, ancient art, which is the large tree. And uh, this is just absolutely unique. Uh, there have been other bronze trees in other parts of the world, other civilizations, but they're later and uh, they're different. Uh, some of them are very elaborate, uh, but to have this very early piece and then in such an elaborate form already calligraphically uh, really formed, and that's fantastic. Just the shape of it and the imagination people then put into making this, it's really amazing to me. Uh, and to me, so even if you know about it, uh, the amazement never ends. Mm. I really wonder when you are traveling, such as going to museums like this and others around the world, what kind of horizon does it open for you in terms of how you're going to chat to your curators back home, you know, what kind of future exhibit you are going to plan? Well, the thing is that when you travel, you always have to insist not just to meet people, but also to look and learn about uh, the art, the culture. And I really make a point about that. You know, sometimes I, uh, we can be somewhere only for three days, but then uh, don't put your schedule full of meetings, but squeeze something in like uh, a museum. And I mean, this was a true revelation. Right. And it was of a lifetime sometimes when we travel around the world. Exactly. I mean, uh, there are so many uh, treasures in the world. Uh, some things we already know we can see only once. Other things we can hope to see more than once. And considering uh, the active uh, unearthing campaigns that are ongoing, some of the works that we saw here were unearthed only in 2021, others in 1986. So. Uh, it could be very interesting to come back in 10 or 20 years and uh, other great uh, masterpieces from the past might have been discovered in the meantime. Right. You look at the exhibit when they were showing how this whole process of discovering uh, the masks and the whole, you know, Sanxingdui, in a way, a miracle, started from 1930s. Yes. They didn't have didn't happen until much later, almost spending a whole century in order to find all of these treasures. Uh, Herculaneum and Pompeii were already discovered in the 18th century, and it was always uh, going forward for a few years and then stopping for many years, and then going forward again and then stopping again. So the last campaign was in the 1950s. Nothing comes easy, right? Exactly, and, uh, and then they stopped uh, for over half a century, and uh, the most recent campaign only uh, started about 10 years ago and it's ongoing, but it's also ongoing very slow. I mean, it's not even half of it is, is unearthed so far. So there's 
as far as Italy is uh, concerned, there's centuries to go. Yeah. Sometimes very touched by the kind of people who have, and the generations of people who have yes. been working on the discovery of uh, the treasures. Absolutely. The resistance they need to have. You have to be patient especially, that's the most important thing. You cannot go in there and dig and say, I want to find a masterpiece. You will never find it. Uh, it will be the day when you're looking for something completely different, that by pure coincidence it will seem you will find something spectacular. And I think that's also true about communication, isn't it? Exactly. No miracle can be achieved within one minute. Exactly, and you cannot force it. You have to be open, but it needs to be the right person, the right day, the right place. <laughs> the right weather. The right weather. This is the right weather because it's not too hot and not too cold. I like it. It's a little breeze, uh, and yet we're not at the sea. We're really in the center of the mainland. Indeed, it's very typical of Chengdu, this yes. fun city. Having said that, though, about sculptures, you have a special eye and special nose for sculptures, isn't it? That, that was really my academic and continues to be my academic specialty. Uh, I uh, always felt um, a particular connection to three-dimensional works. And um, uh, I love sculptures from any period and any geographical origin. Of course, you can specialize and really delve into the depth only in a few uh, specialized fields. Uh, in my case it was Italian Renaissance sculpture and also European Baroque sculpture. Uh, the Baroque period is already very international so it's difficult to study one, just one nation and not the other. So um, uh, that's... Uh, so Why is that special to you? It's special to me because uh, it's something real. Sculpture is something you can touch. And if you walk around it, you see something different. Different, yes, indeed. But why is that period of time special to you? I know you've been doing a lot of research about it. What's about it that you say to your friends, you know, that's why I'm, I'm so deep in love with this period? Well, the Italian Renaissance uh, it was very important uh, because uh, it was rediscovered the value of learning and the value of learning over generations to be open to previous uh, civilizations, but also to be open to faraway civilizations. So in a way that was the model for some aspects of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, and yet again it can be a model for us in the 21st century. How was it reflected in sculptures? It was reflected in sculptures... Give me one or two examples. Well, if you look at Donatello's uh, works, you see highly individualistic uh, representations of human beings um, and uh, these uh, people are uh, so detailed that you think that they're alive almost and uh, you can believe that these people could just sit across you and uh, you know they're not necessarily beautiful in the sense that they would uh, respond to a particular sometimes they are but um, not always it's really more about being recognizable and so therefore, uh, uh, in fact, uh, Donatello uh, rather uh, expressed particular emotions and moods uh, and individual uh, features of people than having a unified, um, stylized uh, face. And um, again, that's something that uh, today we can cherish because everyone has their own place in society. It's important to have the collective, but it's also important to have the individual. 
and then the other um, uh, work, think of the um, uh, St. George uh, killing the dragon by Donatello, and that is uh, also a sculpture that um, by its physical being uh, represents a philosophical concept, that of being aware and to be ready to defend, in that case, the Republic of Florence. And uh, again, to have a philosophical concept imbued in a 3D work of art, and marble and bronze, and uh, that's, that's something that uh, really flourished at the time. Just as in, with very different uh, artistic means, here we have the same concept that birds and dragons that all represent forces of nature, but also of society, of, of the mind, of humankind, are represented in those material uh, works of art, in these 3D works of art, uh, so you have philosophical uh, sculptures. Just think about the Renaissance, how it came into being. That's a long story, and That's I know we have to story. go to the yes. Yeah, but, but you just think about how they came into being. It went through a very long period of time, a very different history, yes. and eventually people come to some kind of natural consensus and make Renaissance possible. Yes. what we call Renaissance possible. And they called it Renaissance, and they were not believed initially. Most people uh, who lived in the Renaissance didn't care about it because they didn't know about it. Only afterwards, when the Renaissance was already in full blow, everybody accepted that actually the Renaissance had come into being. That's why I want to ask you about this, because now we are in a very difficult time, it seems. Yes. At least our generation feels the same way, yes. that there's so-called deglobalization or whatever terminology that is. Yes. There's economic difficulties, there seems to be hatred, yes. there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding, yes. there's to be echo chambers. When you are looking at art and the cross-cultural civilizations communication, you know, what kind of inspirations all your earlier research would provide you with a better insights about dealing with today? Well, people were fighting uh, against one another in the Middle Ages. They f were fighting against uh, one another in the 19th century. In retrospect, their weapons were not so great. Uh, the weapons in the hands of mankind have become more and more powerful. Um, and these are not physical weapons anymore, but they're also uh, uh, AI weapons and so... Nuclear as well. And nuclear weapons. Uh, so uh, that is always the downside of uh, technological progress, that uh, also the dangerous size of science uh, goes along with all the positive. The positive is prevailing, and so I am an optimist, but it is very important not to forget culture, because if you do science without doing culture, you can use science for whatever you happen to want to use it, and not all people in all moments are always in a good mood. So therefore, uh, it's very, very important to have culture as something that connects people, that um, creates mutual understanding, and um, is, is really something that Whenever we look at any given artwork, and we could take out any uh, of this museum here, um, it, people will be realizing uh, that a polarization uh, is an oversimplification which is not helpful. 
And that is, of course, especially true when it comes to the global order, which cannot be polarized. Right. Final question about museums. Dear to your heart, I guess, because you've been working in very different kinds of museums all over the world. What is the role of museum today? And the limits and the aspirations that museums could provide to people? Well, of course, museums also have their share in science and in research, just as the natural sciences have. And that's also important that museums do that. In this particular case, it's uh, the science of uh, archaeology. And, uh, but it just, that's just the starting point. We also are keepers of the ideas that are transmitted in the museums and in the values that interacting with art are being created in human beings. So we also have to communicate that and uh, use it uh, in order to address the problems of today's world. Thank you so much, Aika. You're welcome. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now.